and welcome to James Bond and Friends. And it's been a while, friends. It's been 27 weeks since we last did an episode because we've been doing our debriefs. So we thought it would be a good time to recap the 60th anniversary events that we've seen over the last couple of weeks and just touch base with uh, with where we're at and everything that's been going on um, in the real world whilst we've been doing the reviews. So with that, we are joined by Phil Nabil Jr., Calvin Dyson and Sean Longmore. Would you like to introduce yourself, guys? Hello, Phil Nabil Jr., editor of Fangoria Magazine. Uh, excited to talk about the 60th and and uh, and what what it was and wasn't. <laughs> uh, and I'm Calvin Dyson. I have a YouTube channel under that name where I make uh, videos relating to all things James Bond, uh, some of which we're going to talk about on this podcast. And hello, I'm Sean Longmore. I'm a graphic designer and artist, and I sometimes make James Bondy pictures. All right, so to kick off, what I think we should do is um, go around the houses and um, find out what everybody did to celebrate the 60th anniversary. Who wants to go first? Well, I, I will say that like many Bond fans, um, and I will congratulate all you Bond fans out there that also did this, I sat through the Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris trailer 25 <laughs> times. <laughs> My goodness. Does that, that is, time is that, add is that to available the... on Amazon Prime by any chance? <laughs> <laughs> Oh. Does the time oh. that you've spent watching the trailer sort of equal out the running time of the f- actual film by this point? Have you seen more Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris than you would have done if you'd have just watched very the film? Possibly, well, a two and a half minute trailer 25 times over. It's very possible. Oh. My wow. God. Every week. Oh, my yeah. head has gone off to the war. Ooh, he looks <laughs> like my milkman. I could, I could recite that trailer back. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. So for those not familiar... Outside the UK, um, the UK was blessed with re-releases of every James Bond film, official. Um, yes. Start with Doctor No, way back when. I can't remember. 27 weeks ago, right? Um, and Sean, did you go to every single one? Uh, so, you know, I will confess, I missed Doctor No because I had the COVID. Um, I didn't want to be that guy that showed up with the COVID. Um, and I missed Live and Let Die because I was traveling at the time. But I did all the rest. How did you find them? Uh, interest, interesting. Um, they uh, the new scan. They were mostly the new 4K scans. Um, before they've now they're now on Amazon, but they're fixed versions. Is that right? Yeah. Um, there were some dodgy. You could. There were some dodgy bits where some of the credits were misaligned, and some of the bits and stuff were not quite right. But 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 they look lovely. They look really lovely, and it made me appreciate some of the films that maybe I'd not appreciated before. Um, particularly on how good they looked um, and sounded, actually. Um, there, there were a few that I kind of expected to be wowed by and did really wow me. Uh, you Only Live Twice still sticks in my head as being really, really good on the big screen. Uh, and then there were some like License to Kill, which I kind of, I think I went in thinking, well, it's License to Kill. It all looks a bit cheap doesn't it but actually it looked absolutely beautiful and um the ending sequence in particular really really shone Um, that that was quite a revelation for me seeing that one i i only saw four of them in the end i wish i'd made more of an effort now but being in london the films get played it seems like every year at this point at the prince charles cinema so it doesn't feel like there's you know much of a, a a hurry even though i wish that i had um seen some more of these 4k scans but license to kill in particular was a real like 
revelatory <laughs> experience for me seeing that film on the big screen and just huge walls of flames like the colors really popped and um yeah when i was watching that one i noticed that there was some sound issues and i did wonder if it was the um uh, the cinema itself there was, a, there was some bits towards the climax where i can't remember if it was like, like the music or the sound effects or so, so some of the audio tracks just suddenly disappeared it seemed um for just a few seconds and i do wonder if this was part of a wider problem with these 4k scans maybe in the tracks and whatnot um but they were all brilliant experiences. Even Dying of the Day was great. Oh, I don't know about really? your experience with that, Sean, but that was I, I loved that. <laughs> oh, it was it was so much fun, and it's so much fun watching that in a sort of a, a communal environment as well. And mm. you could you could tell everyone was actually just going with it and really enjoying it. Um, and that was that was part actually part a really nice part of the experience. Is I didn't really interact with many people at the screenings, but I did mm. see people attending regularly and did see the same faces every week. Ah. Um, and it actually it, it surprised me of how much of a mix of people there was as well. Like there was um, a young couple who kept showing up every week, um, mm. but then also some what you would typically think as Bond fans. Their, their relationship sustained all 25 films. <laughs> well, it, did, it did, it did. And we, I, I remember we, we, we had a chat. We were we were kind of like wondering how long it had lasted. And at first you think, oh, maybe he's brought her along and he's dragged her along. Right. But, but actually they both really, that was a, my judgment and I, I shouldn't have made that um, because they did both seem like really big Bond fans by the end of it. But yeah, no, it was it was wonderful. It was wonderful. It was great. That it's how they should be seen. Um, except maybe not Diamonds Are Forever. That one has cleaned up really well. And then when you look at it on a really big screen, it just shows how cheap and shoddy everything was. <laughs> um, but no, no, wonderful experience. I really enjoyed them. Um, Phil, we didn't get any proper screenings in the States, did we? Other than that horrible Doctor No over a satellite top set set top box Fathom events jank um right we we you know fathom events has sort of a monopoly on these rep screenings if you're not you know playing a a print a film print from a private collector and uh it's just a role i don't know what it's like in the uk but it's just a roll of the dice when it's fathom events and uh we sometimes it looks great and sometimes it doesn't and we got word that the doctor no uh print that they were showing was not a good one mm-hmm. so i stayed home I mean, right? You know, I got a new 4K television, and uh, you know, it, it was it, it looked great at home. But we didn't get we didn't get an event to sort of go to uh, on the level that the that the UK audience did. And it's kind of a shame. So speaking of events, um, Sean, we sent you off on a little mission, didn't we? Um, yes, a couple of weeks ago, <laughs> head of the Christie head of the Christie screening. Yes. Uh, so you guys very kindly very lovely uh, you sent me a text out of the blue and said would you like to go down to London expenses paid I was like yes I'm not going to turn down a free lunch you know um, and sent me to the Christie's press morning to go and check out the bits of the auction and to interview Michael G. Wilson and Mick Simmons who's head of the Bond archive and it was a wonderful wonderful morning manic crazy um really bonkers to be in that environment as someone who's not a sort of professional journalist um, to just kind of go in and suddenly you're surrounded by a and someone grabs you by the arm and goes, right, you're coming this way, here you go. And I, I was lured straight in and it's straight into my interviews. So I was like, ah, okay. Um, but it was wonderful, wonderful, really, really pleasant morning and really nice to chat with um, with 
MGW and Greg Wilson, of course, who were both there. We sat down, we got five minutes. There was a woman with a timer. He was like, you've got five minutes. <laughs> um, and asked him some questions. And my mission in particular from you was to ask him about yes. working on James Bond Jr. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. I did. I, I was like, okay, yeah, I, I knew there was a catch, and that was the, that was the catch, as I had to steer the conversation with Michael G. Wilson to be about James Bond Jr. Um, and safe to say he'd not been asked about it for the rest of the morning. Right. Um, so, <laughs> so I, 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 which I, I think he kind of welcomed. He was, he was a very, he was very lovely. Um, and he was very, he said um, that there, it was a t- interesting experiment, I think were his words. So I can't remember the exact ones. I need to get the transcript out. Um, but there, yeah, he, he thought it was interesting at the time. He didn't massively go into it. Um, I did men- ask if he t- they'd ever consider doing it again, and they said maybe not. But they did say they're doing <laughs> a James Bond game, so yeah, was, which um, maybe not for the same kind of audience, though. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's interesting yeah. that he's equating that. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I, well, I think That's I think it was it was just a um, them we. we He's just like we've, we've experimented with other mediums, but they very much want to concentrate on the films. Hmm. Um, and then, but they were saying, "Well, we are expanding out and doing the games." Hmm. Um, and it from we have it, we did have a little bit of chat about it. Like I say, it was very quick. I have five minutes, and like I say, there was a woman looming over the timer, so it was very like got to stay to the point. Um, but the vibe was that they seem to be involved with the game, which is good, I guess. They've not just yeah. handed it off and. Mm. Giving it to someone else to run rampage with it. Um, he did say that there was some. There was one very interesting thing. Um, I was asking them about working on the films and asked about his writing ideas and if he had any ideas he wanted to explore. Um, to which he said he wasn't really sure, but they've got um, Neil Purvis and Robert Wade, um, and he very much spoke about them as though they were kind of like um, regulars. So I would assume that means they're going forward mm-hmm. into the next Bond movie. Yep. Yep. At least the, the, the concept in the first draft, right? Mm. I find that Sorry. quite interesting, though. Like, James, you might know more about this from um, past interviews and such, but have they ever, like, when, you know, there's, there's as far as we're aware, development hasn't even really started as such yet, but, if, you know, in previous, the previous few films, Purvis and Wade have said, well, this is the last one we're not doing... Um, anymore after this it feels i'm pretty sure they even said the same thing about no time to die so i find mm. it interesting that eon are kind of saying like oh yeah they'll be back uh, well they they do tend to answer the call and fix things don't they mm. um, okay and i think i i don't blame the producers for going to them out the, out the gate to reboot because when they have stepped off the ledge a little bit and gone to like peter morgan Mm. and John Hodge coming in with Danny Boyle, and they've come in with very strong ideas. Mm. And they've been like, oof, can you call Neil and Rob again? Right, yeah. <laughs> I think they might be hesitant, and, and even, I'd say, Haggis, right, when he had a go at mm. doing um, Quantum. Mm. I, I think they just want to save a pair of hands. Mm. Well, and they really know they're Fleming as well, and they certainly know yeah. the history of the series. It makes sense you know, to, to have them provide something of a base and then maybe you bring in another writer or two to polish it. I think the criticism could be, why go back to the same guys and expect new ideas, right? Mm. But I mm. would counter that with when they have gone to people for new ideas, they haven't been good. Right, And yeah. 
who better to know what's been done before? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and avoid it, right? Because mm. um, mm. I think when we interviewed them about, um, I can't remember if it was Skyfall or something, and um, the direct, I think Man- Mendes had an idea for how to kill one of the henchmen off or something, and they were like, oh, no, that's already been done before back in like 1971. Like they instantly knew you couldn't do it. Mm. Um I don't think you'd get that by bringing in somebody that wasn't so entrenched in it. Mm, very true. Yeah. And I mean, whoever they hire for the director is going to have their say in the script anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So true. to get the idea and the concept and the foundation in place, mm. I think they're a safe pair of hands. Mm. And most of the criticisms that they get are not fair because most of them is, uh, have actually been the director. Yeah. Yeah. But, but yes, 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 no, no, it was a lovely, lovely chat with MGW. He was a, he was a very nice man as well. Um, uh, and you'll probably, if you ever, if you go back and see any of the news footage of the day, you might, I tried to linger in the room as long as possible, um, <laughs> but it, it, it was just, it was, it was just me and my cat and my phone camera while everyone else was sort of like, so there were lots of people around setting up like proper TV cameras with shots of the DB5, which was in the center of the room. And then all the other props were sort of decorated around the edge. Um, and so everyone was posing and talking in front of the db5 and then you'll probably just see me in the back of footage just wandering around the little sort of cabinets behind because the db5 i was kind of like okay yeah db5 lovely um but then i was also what i was getting really excited about was stuff like the world is not enough locator cards were in a glass cabinet and so i was like ooh, mm. and then there's a Fabergé <laughs> egg and various watches and things like that and so that's the kind of stuff i was getting excited so you probably see you probably able to see me bouncing out right over really nerdy little things about everyone else's <laughs> admiring the car um there's some absolutely fantastic stuff that is in immaculate condition um what really struck me, they had Barbara Bach's dress. Well, one mm. of them from The Spiral of Me, the blue one with the sort of diamond trimming. That was in really good condition. Um, but seeing it in person, I was really struck actually by how tiny she was. Like right. the dress was absolutely tiny. Her waist must have been so small. But lots of stuff like that. They had some lovely mint condition original posters, campaigns. I think there was Man with the Golden Gun, Moonraker. Uh, there was an A View to Kill Bollinger one. Uh, there might have been an Octopussy. I'm not sure. Yeah, but there, there was lots. There was a real. I was talk, when I was talking to uh, Meg, um, head of the archive. She was saying that stuff had been cherry picked, and they deliberately tried to make sure every film got some kind of representation in the auction. Some of the links are a bit tenuous. I thought um, with stuff like the Majesty's watch was just a replica set um, and that was how that was accounted for in the collection but it was really 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 interesting to see the props yeah and it made an awful lot of money for charity didn't it the auction. yes yes of course um it was it did really well it was it's three and a half million or something like that um and then after uh, towards the end of the press morning uh i hung about i think it was waiting about an hour and a half so a lot of the other journalists had gone home um, but then they came and brought out onto the street um, the Vantage V8. Nice. Uh, the Val, no, not Valhalla, sorry, D, Mon, um, Nomi's DBS and one of the Land Rovers from No Time to Die shot off the street for 10 minutes outside and 
had them outside the building for photos and stuff, and they were beautiful, beautiful cars. Like I've got to say, the V8 is probably the worst James Bond car in the sense that it is the least sort of covert. You could smell it coming. <laughs> <laughs> you can smell the petrol um, and hear it as well. Um, but it's a beautiful, beautiful car. So if money wasn't an object, Sean, which of those objects would you have left the uh, left Christie's with? Of all the objects? Mm. You see, honestly, I really, it is really nerdy, but those Wilders not enough locator cards and clock. I, there was something about <laughs> that. I was like, wow, that is the clock that Judy Dench picked up off the floor. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> that, that really struck me. The posters were beautiful. Um, the eye was really cool. The No Time to Die eye, because it was sat and they had the pillow. Um, <laughs> and the, the, it, what was really strange was the Fabergé egg, um, because whenever it was being handled, obviously it was being handled by Christie's, sorry, Christie's officials in white gloves, and everyone was gathered around it and filming it, and it had to be taken out of the cabinet especially, and everyone was going, ooh, ah, so it was a real Fabergé egg. And so that was that was a bit surreal. That as everyone's mm. sort of treating it like they're holding this precious original Fabergé <laughs> egg, but actually it's just the knock-up they made for Oxpussy. Right. But no, no, wonderful, uh, absolutely wonderful. There was all sorts of stuff there. Safin's outfit was there um, with his mask and Nomi's combat gear. There was a few Daniel Craig suits, uh, Daniel Craig's bow ties that were all signed. Um, there was a model from Tomorrow Never Dies that was really cool. Um, yeah, the BMW. The, right? the BMW. Um, and, oh, there was the Triumph motorbike from No Time to Die that was sat behind Michael G. Wilson when he was giving the interviews. But yeah, it did wonderful. So I, I don't know. Maybe, yeah, maybe the locator cards is probably what I'd pinch. That's, that seems like a cool <laughs> little knickknack. They'd be able to find you, though, wouldn't they? Nah, well, well would they? Because I've stolen the locator cards. You know? <laughs> if I never plug it into the clock, I'll be okay. <laughs> So it was around this time that the um, Sound of 007 music documentary dropped, wasn't it? And um, mm-hmm. I think when they when they started announcing like what they were going to do for the 60th um, and they were going to focus on the music, i got to admit, I was a little disappointed that that's what they were going to do. Mm. Uh, totally wrong about that because mm. I thought it was great in the end. Um, yeah. The, like they actually had a theme to kind of tie everything together with. Um, mm. I, and I, 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 I was thinking that as well because I, I, I guess with the 50th anniversary they had the big Everything or Nothing documentary which covered the history of the uh, the film series and focused specifically on Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman in in yeah. that story. There wasn't a whole I, lot to update it with, was there? Well, yeah. So I, <laughs> yeah, it was a bit sort of like oh, I guess yeah, they could just tack on another ten minutes maybe, which should all be about No Time to Die, obviously. Uh, so no, I, I I quite liked that it gave it a, a focus with the music. Yeah. So as somebody who sits through a lot of these kind of documentaries, Phil, what did you think of it? Sits through them or sits in them? Um, (laughs) (laughs) Well, here's, here's, yeah, exactly. Um, I would thought it was, I thought it was incredibly entertaining, but I don't know why they imposed a 90 minute cap on themselves. And I say that as somebody who complains about in the horror space, there are documentaries about franchises and, or, or decades that are four hours long. And I think that that's overkill. But I feel like you could feel the cuts in this thing in getting it to an under a 90-minute runtime. You had Sheena Easton there, and you did not talk about Sheena Easton's song. You talk about John Barry tiring of the franchise, but there's not a mention made of AHA or or the last film. Right. So I, 
I really loved what I saw and I would love to see a director's cut because I feel like there was lots of stuff that was probably collected and probably uh, edited and faceted pretty well into that documentary than it was cut for right. time is my guess. Yeah. I mean, that was absolutely true of everything or nothing because like, we know a lot of the people they interviewed for that documentary 10 years ago that didn't make it into the cut. Mm. So and that's the way documentaries. Be, yeah, you know, that's there's bound to be gold that was left on the floor. But, um, but the the you know John Barry certainly got his due in the documentary. There was no shortage of like uh, reverence and yes. respect paid to, to Barry. But I think Bill Conti got a sentence. Um, I think that uh, Eric Sarah got a blurry photo. Yeah, Eric Sarah. <laughs> um, God, who's what's the name of the guy that scored? No, oh, um, Hamlish. Hamlish got some attention in Spy for Spy Who Loved Me. Yeah, and um, what and was I think there prob- was great. I think predominantly because of the nobody does it better theme being used so much in these kind of like anniversary things. It's still the touchstone for the normies on the street, isn't it? It's yeah. like that's the song that you can't not talk about. And uh, and I thought it was just odd that they spent so much time on the Goldfinger song and not a not a mention of Newly, the lyricist. Right. I mean, they talked about the lyrics, but didn't credit Newly in the doc as the lyricist. Um, so it was it was the way that these things go, but it was top notch the way it was presented. I love the graphic treatment and the visual, the way to keep a thing like this moving visually. This this would be, you know, uh, the gold standard. I thought the way they sort of animated their stills and incorporated them into the uh, other visuals. I thought that that all was done very very well. Yeah. What did you think, Helen? Yeah, um, same. I, I I just wish that there was more. And if I, if I do have one major criticism of it, it's that I would have kind of preferred it to just take a more linear approach to going through the decades. Because I thought it, it, it jumped around quite a lot and there were some sequences that felt kind of montage as a result of that and a bit loose. I kind of like the Everything or Nothing documentary because it does present it as Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman's story. And it's kind of their journey through, you know, the, the making of these films and Kevin McClory and Sean Connery come in as antagonists, but it, it still feels kind of human in that way. And I thought that this was going that way, making it kind of John Barry's story. And it feels right. like it is more his story than anyone else's. Uh, but it, it kind of lost its its way in a few places. But the you know the quality of the presentation, as Phil said, was absolutely top notch, and lots of nice little stories and stuff that you um you don't hear the official sources talking about all that much, like how Amy Winehouse you know came in mm. for a meeting with Barbara Broccoli. That was really cool, and they talk about the Radiohead song as well, which is awesome and you have this sort of hint of regret in Sam Mendes' voice <laughs> in like or particularly yeah. Daniel Craig actually because he's a Radiohead fan isn't he uh, oh and it's the salt in the wound which I couldn't believe they did was was putting this, the Radiohead song over the Spectre titles right yeah I mean straight from fan YouTube straight from fan YouTube right? yes. I mean that was yeah. um, but I did kind of chuckle to myself when they 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 twice mentioned the fact that Sam um, Sam Smith wrote it in 20 minutes and recorded yeah. it in the first yeah. tape. Like, <laughs> like literally minimum effort, boys. Yeah. And then it was like, oh, Radiohead, you've done a good song for us now. Damn, we're stuck with the Sam Smith thing. I mean, that's pretty much what they were saying, right? So, yeah, yeah. That's certainly reading between the lines. And I say that, so, but like, I prefer the Sam Smith song, actually, that's uh, of, of the two. But um, yeah. it was just nice that they went there and it wasn't your usual kind of you know it was it, it's the kind of stuff that differentiates it from being a promotional fluff piece when they will 
go into things like yeah. that and kind of acknowledge some, you know, Shirley Bassey talks about how she doesn't like Moonraker very right. much and Tim Rice about all time high yeah. not being that great. And it's, it's nice when it's not exactly warts and all, but the yeah. elements of that pimples and all maybe. Yeah. I think it was, it was, they deliberately did choose some songs, not know, Cheryl Crow. Don't talk about it because then we'd have to talk about Katie Lang. So let's just leave that alone. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. But here's Jack White like for that. 10 minutes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think they might feel obliged to have used that footage, but um, it I, to me it was missing a narrator, right, and, and a through line mm. because it was like, as you say, it was almost like two parts. It was like John Barry's stuff was really tight, and then after John Barry, it was just like, it was almost like one of those things I love about the '90s documentaries, where it was just like a bunch of talking heads saying the same thing in clips, somewhat, mm. yeah, somewhat. Um, and I think John Burlingame was probably the connective tissue of the mm. documentary with this, the, when yeah. he popped up to talk about things and they could have used him a bit more, but as you say, for captain 90 minutes, I mean, it's pretty tough. Which I just don't understand. And not, narrators have really fallen out of fashion in these kind of documentaries. Um, and what you do is you, you, you put a ringer in there and it was probably John Burlingame to just say the things that you need to be said to get right. you from A to B. Yeah. Um, and certainly I'm sure the folks that made this documentary did that. It just didn't right. didn't get incorporated so much into the yeah. Uh, that, my- sorry, just on that, I was going to say there's an intro, there's an interview in the program. I don't know if anyone else has read the program for the concert. Uh, they did an interview with the director of the documentary, and he does specifically say that they could have easily made a ten part television series talking about every score. <laughs> yep. So they were they were constrained. Mm. Yeah, my one laugh out loud moment was when somebody said, "Did Rami Malek say Queen?" It's <laughs> <laughs> like so call the guy out. And then still they ran with it. Yeah, it was good. it was funny. Yeah, I also I also like um, how they framed Monty Norman as a show tunes guy that was out mm. of his depth, and um, they didn't shy away from calling a spade a spade with that. Mm. Yeah, he was treated about as courteously as you could expect or hope for. I think right. Yeah. And not erased, which is, you know, often on the table with Eon. So, yes. <laughs> be, be thankful you what you got, Normie. I, I was intrigued, actually, about the Monty Norman stuff. About, that, that was my, I think it's my one criticism about the documentary. It was really, it's, an, it's a really nitpicky thing, so I thought it was wonderful. Um, but none of the archive footage was sort of specifically highlighted as archive footage and it's highlighted archive interviews. And I, yeah. I quite like it when that's sort of dated. Um, I mean, um, if you if you were if you were kind of a normie, a civilian, as uh, somebody would yeah, say, you and you're mind. watching this, you wouldn't know John Barry was dead until they put up the little date on him at the end. Yeah. Mm. Right? Um, but I was curious about the Monty Norman stuff because, there, again, in this same interview, the director says that um, they contacted Monty Norman and spoke with him literally just before he died, and it was the last interview he ever gave. Mm. But I, I couldn't work out which bits of the footage was he, was, was, he was asking how much his fee was. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I just couldn't work out if any of it made it, or because a lot of it did look like archive footage that was his contribution. Yes, it was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that must mean there is an interview out there that hasn't been published right. yet. Yeah. So seeking into that, you two were fortunate enough to go to the concert, right? <laughs> and, yeah. And Monty Norman wasn't there at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, but plenty of other people were. So it was. Uh, I mean, I, I I don't know about you, Sean, but this is certainly my sort of big 
this is what I'm going to remember the 60th anniversary for as a you know in a personal event that I went to anyway. Uh, it was really wonderful. Felt like it was so uh, constructed for the fans, like. It, particularly the instrumental pieces that the orchestra was playing at the Albert Hall. It was just Sean turned to me after one of the golden IQs got played um, and said, like, how often is that piece of music played in a venue like this on a stage like this with an orchestra like this? It just doesn't happen. It's specifically the cue when Bond and Natalia are on the beach um, just before the, you know, the climax gets going in Goldeneye. And it was just such a beautiful piece of music to just listen to, and the orchestra played it wonderfully. And there were lots of moments like that throughout the concert that, like, you know, David Arnold curated it. And you could really tell that he was giving a lot of the other composers their dues as well. A piece from Spectre got played, which is a soundtrack which gets dogged Mm -hmm. on a lot, including by myself, which was Mm -hmm. just really lovely to listen to as well. Um, and then, yeah, of course, there was the singers. Um, Sean, do you want to talk about them? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah Shirley I, Bassey was, yeah, insane. <laughs> it, it, it was mental, and I, I completely echo that because we, but for anyone, obviously, people who don't know, we, me and you went together, and it was it was lovely. In your video, you said it was one of the best nights of your life, and that made me so happy um, because I completely agree. It was wonderful. Um, and, yeah, it, it felt like it was curated specifically for fans and by a fan, like by David Arnold, mm. who'd obviously gone and sat down and, piece these music pieces of music together and the covers uh the, the covers were also great the singers yeah but shirley bassey opened with diamonds are forever and then did Goldfinger and got i must miss three four standing ovations mm. wow um so she started the so, concert there, there proper so many moments where it was like wow i'm actually stood what it was lulu was incredible um garbage was incredible um and and Hans Zimmer, Hans Zimmer and David Arnold, um, that one really, that was a moment where I was like, wow, because you've got two <laughs> real sort of great of film score music uh, jamming and playing the Bond theme together. And there was a moment during that where Hans Zimmer's, the guitar came unplugged. And so David Arnold ran across the stage and plugged him back in and that got a big round of applause. And, um yeah, it, it, I, I I still can't quite process it all in my head. It was just astounding, <laughs> and it was it was those instrumental pieces. You're right, Kelly, and, and I feel really I feel really guilty kind of saying that because I know there would be a lot of people listening to this who obviously weren't there, and sadly some, they didn't make it onto the, the thing, onto the video version. Mm. Right. Um, but it was those pieces that felt really really special um, mm. because because it was a case of that's probably music we're never going to hear played live again. Mm. Um, and it was, it was actually during the Spectre piece during Madeline's theme um, where that hit me and I was like, wow, this is just, this, this is an experience. Mm. So Calvin, you're not really <clears throat> yourself confessed, not really big into music, right? Yes. So I did, can't. Yeah. Did this hit doubly hard? How good it was. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, definitely. I mean, when when I say I'm not big into music, it's more in the sense I I, I don't know technical terms, and I can't tell you what a the treble clef is. <laughs> That's the thing in music, isn't it? Um, I I don't I don't know those sorts of things. Um, but this, I mean, it was a wonderful experience. Just letting it just wash over you. It was a really um, yeah, just brilliant night. And seeing garbage mm-hmm. live was my mm-hmm. highlight. Just again, like not 
not often that I have seen even on YouTube like a live recording of them actually singing that song and um, you know being a 90s kid loving the world is not enough like that was just yeah. a phenomenal experience Arnold def- definitely collect- you know he had an eclectic group of cover artists right and mm-hmm. I remember when he did the Shake and Not Stirred album in my 96, 97 and you look at the back of that and you look at the list of artists he got together for it and you're like what? Mm? but they all work right mm. And mm-hmm. when they announced the singers, I got to be admit I had to Google a couple of them. Same. Um, and and then I, when I saw the set list, I was like, okay, that makes sense. You know, mm-hmm. like his choices. Um, so why the hell David Arnold isn't back doing the scores now? Um, hopefully mm-hmm. he will be for Bond Twenty Six. But and he's seemingly in in good graces with all of them. Still, he seems like they're. Their house band guy. He's their Paul Schaefer. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I just want to add to, to Calvin and Sean's comments that watching uh, 58 minutes of it on Amazon at home was also really great too, mm. even though I didn't get to hear any of your instrumental, you know, moments in history that will never be repeated again. Um, I, had a great, I had a great time. Is Amazon running out of space or something? That Why are, they, <laughs> why are we chopping these things down to uh, the, the bare bones? Yeah, um, I, I did talk to somebody about that at, Amazon, I had a side conversation and although they weren't involved in it directly, their their assumption was that it was cut for the masses sure. and um, mm-hmm. having instrumental bits of the boat chase or Bond 77 would have kind of been a bit, they would have been fast forwarded. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so they, they did it for the masses, but that does not explain why they couldn't have had two cuts. Well, well, so I have a follow-up question though, because the the cover artists that were there very UK centric. A lot of them have not shown up over here, as far as I'm well, aware. Well, I think there were people known to David Arnold, right? Um, right. So, personally. so was there was there covers that we missed, or do we see all the songs on the Amazon? No, there were some covers yeah. that weren't in the Amazon, such as. Sean, can you remember there was one? Um, yes, um, Ella Eyre did Nobody's Does It Better. She did License to Kill in the first mm. act, and she did Nobody Does It Better oh, in the second act. Man. And it, it, it was beautiful. It was wonderful. Um, uh, I don't, I don't, I've not watched the stream yet, so I don't know what was cut. I um, think that might have been the only song. Um, uh, the only instrumentals that made it through were when Hans Zimmer came on stage right. um, and then the uh, the Bond theme at the end. Uh, though they did do an encore of that. Uh, yes, we we all we all kind of just applauded. And it was a very long applause, wasn't it? And we mm. all just kind of kept applauding until David Arnold came back out and he went, we, we've not planned an encore, so we're just going to do the Bond theme again. And we were like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and all the, all, the, all the speeches were cut as well, right? So, I mean, you would expect that bit. To yes. Be. Except yeah. for his, oh. his bit about Chris Cornell. Yeah. Mm, yes, which was lovely. David Arnold singing uh, You Know My Name was brilliant. Um, and Chrissy Hines uh, is in the uh, brochure, right. but she wasn't there um, from the pretenders. Yeah, the pretenders. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. She's in the program as singing If There Was a Man, but right. she wasn't there. Huh. Which is, again, one for the fans, right? Because. Yeah. Yeah. The average um, moviegoer is not going to know where that's from but, or what it was. Right. It, it, mm. it wasn't like. We we I think both of us came out at the end and was it Billy Robertson from Billy's Bond Art who came up to us cover and said oh Chrissy Hine wasn't there and me and you both went oh yeah like there was that much in the yeah. concert that as, oh, yeah. as wonderful as she is her absence didn't necessarily create a big void mm. 
but it was wonderful and the what really impressed me with the covers was how all the artists kind of did their own thing there was Arnold had obviously worked with them to create do something creative with all the music mm. um uh, the, the my, one of my favorites was um Celeste's you only live twice Mm. Um, and, I, and I've seen a few people grumble about it online and say it doesn't quite necessarily sound like the original, but I th- that, that was that really... wasn't the mission, right? The mission, yeah, the exactly. mission wasn't to make it the same. That was and a that highlight. Was, I like that, that one. Was, that one was it was genuinely really beautiful and sort of a little bit haunting while listening to it while we were there in the in the concert. Mm. Um, but yeah, it was absolutely. Um, brilliant. And yeah, the speeches, um, the, the charity people gave a, a speech in the middle. Um, that's probably something else that's worth noting is that it was very much there on the night. They were very much pitching it as a charity event. Um, mm. they, they kept telling us to donate and there were QR codes everywhere. Like we were, <laughs> it was made very obvious it was for charity. Um, and then do, did, was Don Black's speech on the, um, Amazon no, version. No. no. Oh, so, yeah, Don Back gave a very lovely sort of little speech about John Barry. Um, and to talk, he gave, recited the little Michael, Michael Caine's anecdote um, mm. about hearing Goldfinger. I'll post a link um, in the description, but um, somebody did basically video the whole concert and post it on YouTube in chunks. So oh. you can go and experience the instrumentals and stuff but you obviously have the crowd ooing ahhing and cheering yeah <laughs> iPhone quality but sound yes it is but well, I, at, at I, least there's some record of it for posterity sure. it's not just been lost to the wind I, I took a few snippets of bits so I'll send them over to you guys as well to listen to um, yeah I'm, I'm sure Mr. Arnold is sitting on a proper recording oh, of it. It, yeah. it it was all recorded because me and you Calvin were sat directly behind the mixing desk and mm. you could see I could see the screen where someone was mixing it as it was being filmed as well wow. so it was it's all been recorded and mixed it's all there so I wouldn't be surprised if one day it gets a release mm. uh, because also it's not like it's being held up for something like rights clearances or anything so mm. there's nothing stopping them putting it out yeah just like James Bond Jr right so phil what was your experience like watching this all from afar i mean Uh, driven mad with envy and (laughs) violent jealousy um it was it was cool to see i uh we we watched it at home and shirley bassey opened the show and that was just sort of unkind to everyone uh else involved (laughs) because who has to go after shirley bassey um and it was just, I don't know, I'm, I almost got, like, emotional watching Shirley Bassey, because not to ape what Sean is, was saying, but, like, probably that's the last time she's going to perform those songs in front of a crowd like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She's 85 years old. Um, and it was, it was you felt like you were seeing something special, and I, I really enjoyed that. Uh, and I don't want to be the negative guy, but some, some, of the, some of the artists, it felt like I was at karaoke. Um, there were a couple of misfires on the show, I thought. But... I think that if I were there live, you're caught up in the moment of it all and the energy of it all, that it would have played a little bit better. Um, but like I said, I think there was just a lack of familiarity with some of the, some of the artists on this mm. side of the Atlantic. But yeah. uh, it was it was a good time. And the, the documentary uh, happening like within a day of that thing happening and having sort of the same name on, on Amazon, hard to find on the menu screen um, at mm. times. But... Um, 
It was cool. And and so many people that I just know online, like Calvin and Sean and other people were there and got to be there in person. And I was I actually very all, all my jokes about jealousy. So I was very happy that like the Bond fans that I know and that I that I care for got to go to that event. I thought that was a, like that might have been the big event of the 60th, right? Other than the um, the BFI screenings that they did, which I don't, th- I didn't go to. I don't, Sean, you weren't there either, were you? No, they, I wasn't there were some events this. there, um, which uh, would have been nice to go to. I, they, they screened a few of the films. Doctor No was one of them. Um, I think Casino Royale, uh, Spy Loved Me. Yeah, uh, yeah. But <laughs> mixed mixed uh, reviews from those panels that they were very short and uh, oh, didn't oh, take yeah. questions from the audience. Hmm. Which I, I, the latter I can understand because it's like, who's going to be next? When are you making the next film? I always be oh, right, yeah. in the peanut gallery. But, when are you uh, releasing James Bond Junior? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> more of a comment than a question, but uh, <laughs> that old chestnut. Yeah, yeah, uh, and we got, we got no screenings here, so the, the <clears throat> and the BFI stuff didn't seem as noisy, and maybe it's just because of my proximity to this podcast and doing the debriefs over the past several months, but the the re-releases seem to be uh, noisier than the mm. BFI screenings in terms of like fan, you know, uh, appreciation and reactions and whatnot. Yeah. Well, I think particularly in London, like even earlier this year, the Prince Charles cinema had their own run of all of the films that, you know, went through them all. Uh, and then there was the, the main cinema re-releases. So yeah, yet more screenings. Um you know, I, I'm sure they were still fully booked and well attended, and uh, you know they had Michael G. Wilson there doing a panel and whatnot. Um, but yeah, I, yeah, I can appreciate at that point that people were maybe a little bit over the screenings. <laughs> Should we talk about the screenings then? <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to like serve up the box office thing for you. I'm like, yes. you know, go ahead. So, 25 films, 25 weeks. Um, I, I, we had a number of emails come in around you own live twice time or majesty's time like a month in five weeks in that were like oh shit we had no idea these were in the cinema i only found out because i went in to watch something else and saw it advertised and there was a lot of um moaning i think early on from people in our inbox anyway from like why didn't they advertise these events Mm. um but people found out right uh, eventually <laughs> it it was very it was very curious that um so i saw these uh, split across um an odeon and a view um and interestingly view had a trailer that they played for all the films odeon mm. had nothing no marketing whatsoever i'm surprised they didn't run with a view to a kill as the <laughs> uh, thing oh oh right. <laughs> I, saw, I, I saw I saw Fear Eyes only in the View, and interestingly, the View in Manchester is in the print works, and and it's right above a lot of nightclubs. Um, and let me tell you, that is the <laughs> worst film to watch on a Saturday night, sat directly above a nightclub. <laughs> especially the last sort of half an hour when because there's very little music and the, the sort of the when when they're cl- scaling up the cliff and Roger's climbing up the cliff, all I could hear in the background was just boom, 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 boom. <laughs> All right, should we do the... Uh, so, um, we, thanks to the BFI, I got the box office data for the weekends. Now, we're going to health check this with... It's only the Friday to Sunday screenings of the movies. And a lot of people on Twitter, Facebook, and email remind us every week that they go and see it on a Tuesday. I did. Um, yeah, yeah, I did. <laughs> so, we are working on getting the complete box office, but just, you know, it was consistently the three-day weekends. Mm. So, here's the top 10 
So, um, so number 10, squeaking at the bottom, License to Kill, just shy of 10 grand. Number nine, Living Daylights, just over 10 grand. So Dalton got his, both his films in the top 10. Uh, number eight, Live and Let Die, narrowly. Uh, number seven, Majesties, which we all expected was probably going to have a good turnout, mm. especially given no time to die. Number six, Spy Love Me, 12,800. Number five, Goldfinger. With almost 14,000. Uh, number four, Goldeneye. Goldeneye blew it out uh, in the pre Craig era, um, 16,800. And then the top three are all Craig movies. So number three, No Time to Die, um, almost 18 grand. And I caveat that with that was the same week that all the events were going off. So Bond was in the, on the TV all the time and in the media. Mm-hmm. So that probably helped. No, number two, Skyfall. Um, with over 20 grand. Um, that was the week of the Queen's funeral. So mm. Union Jacks everywhere. And cinemas around the country put extra screenings on for that. Which bank helped. holiday. <laughs> yeah, and a bank holiday. Mm. And uh, number one, Casino Royale, 21,000. Mm. So that's your top 10 box set. And um, I'm not surprised to see like the iconic movies of actors eras live and let die spiral of me goldfinger goldeneye all being in the top 10 i think mm. that's the obvious but i was sh- pleasantly surprised to see dalton's both making the top 10 mm. um, bit of a resurgence for dalton and also <clears throat> goldeneye being goldfinger i think that now cements i think goldeneye is the man in the street touchstone movie of the franchise maybe mm. Mm. generational shift mm. generational shift yeah the, um, the the interesting thing about Goldeneye is that it has a lot of fans that aren't James Bond fans. Right. Mm. Right. And maybe people who didn't see it in the theatre, mm-hmm. unlike mm. all those Goldfinger fans um, that keep reminding <laughs> us of that, um, when <laughs> you used the opportunity to go and see it on the big screen yeah. for the first yeah. time. Yeah, there, there will have been a lot of kids that grew up with the game, didn't the get game, to see it right. in the cinema, mm-hmm. and then came. Mm-hmm. came out. Yeah. So let's talk about Basement Dwellers, shall we? So, oh, um, oh, oh, justice for Octopussy. <laughs> so, um, bottom five, uh, Furos Only. Not a lot of people get excited about Furos Only, but I believe it's underrated. Um, the world is not enough. Oh, yeah. Third from bottom. So, we're in the relegation zone, right? Third from bottom, Diamonds Are Forever. <laughs> Uh, going down to the championship, Octopussy. <laughs> and at the very bottom, and it pains me to say this, it's Dino the Day. Boo. That with surprises six, me. With only £6,000. Because uh, I know it has its reputation, but I still would have thought that, you know, the PS1s would have done a bit better. Like, I'm, yeah. Mm-hmm. 20th anniversary. I've got to see. I, I yeah, can, I'm going to. Sorry, Sorry. I'm going to say I'm going to come up with some absolute bullshit theory here um, to try and justify this. Casino Royale, when that came out, it was the every film here in the UK. They did a all across the country, all the cinemas did a promo because it was National Cinema Day, and every ticket Ah. was three pounds. So I am going to suggest I'm going to hypothesise just to justify that Dine of the Day doesn't deserve to be at the bottom. That everybody booked a ticket to go see Casino Royale the following weekend and thought, oh, well, I just can't, I can't afford to go two in a row. (laughs) So Dine of the Day is not going to get. I'm not going to get my attention. I buy it. 
But that you make a good point there, Sean, that that makes Casino Royale's take of 21 grand in the number one spot even more impressive if they're mm-hmm. only selling the tickets for three quid. Three pounds, yeah. Well, well, the bonkers thing, that I remember that Saturday, I went to see Wrath of Khan that day, and even yeah. that was full. Everything was full in the cinema, which is quite a strange experience here in the UK, or it is at least in Manchester. Um, right. It's not a common thing now, so... Yeah, some other things that popped out to me. A View to a Kill, mid-table, hmm. strong performance. Hmm. Um, Thunderball, um, other than, if it wasn't for Diamonds of Forever, Thunderball would be the lowest Connery outing. Right. Um, and Quantum Beat Spectre. Huh. Right, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I've got to say... Uh, Based on some of these, for your eyes only, if you didn't see for your eyes only, you did miss out because that transfer looked gorgeous. It did look gorgeous. Mm. Um, no Time to Die is an interesting one. Um, especially, I d- personally didn't think that would do quite as well because everyone right. saw it last year. You but, can stream, but, and you can stream it for free. But another, another here, another bullshit hypothesis. All the other mm-hmm. films were on TV at the same time. ITV very yes. cunningly timed their screenings on Sunday nights or Saturday nights or whenever it was to co- coincide with the cinema releases. Is No Time to Die on ITV yet? No. So, no. So, no. so there could have been people that watched it all on ITV and then went, oh, well, I'll go see No Time to Die. Yeah, mm. potentially. And we're not just talking about like ITV4 somewhere down the thing. We're talking about ITV1. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was prime, prime time. Prime time, mm-hmm. 8 p.m. on a Saturday night. Mm. Yeah, so thanks ITV. You really, I think that probably punctured a lot of these box office numbers. Mm. Mm. I mean, we had people emailing us saying, "Well, they just went to the cinema, watched it, got home, and watched the end of it again (laughs) (laughs) on ITV." (laughs) So, Phil, was there anything that popped out for you on this list? Well, I feel like that bottom four is a there's a there's a Portuguese saying called "mushfica," which means more for me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if the masses don't want to turn up for Diamonds Are Forever on the big screen, uh, or Die Another Day, what was the other two? Because these Octopussy, are the see the world is not enough and fear is only. Ah, uh, I won't. I won't excuse. I won't make excuses for the world is not enough. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> the oh. rest, I think, would have been pretty cool big screen experiences. And it's a mm-hmm. shame that that folks didn't sort of like get a little more creative in what they turned up for, rather than the you know the greatest hits. Yeah, I oh, yeah that- I, de- definitely, you're definitely right there, Phil, with dying of the day. Um, every, the, the screening I had, like people were laughing; it got lots of lots of laughter. It would have mm-hmm. been so. There's a thing in the states now that they start promoting as rowdy screenings, where they encourage you to kind of get loud and talk back to the screen and whatnot. I, mm-hmm. It sounds like a nightmare for about ninety percent of the movies I would want to go see, but something <laughs> like that for Die Another Day, I think, would have been a lot of fun. Oh, a room full of people shouting mojito would have been great. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we tried to encourage it, but I don't think. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I, I've said for a while that I think Die Another Day is going to ripen into the sort of the, the camp classic of Brosnan's era. And I, I thought that by the 20th anniversary, we'd be there, but maybe not. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we have to get to the point where people didn't didn't see it in the theater and didn't get the uh, tsunami kind of effect. Yep. <laughs> appreciate it. <laughs> the little eye twitches a little bit when that comes on still. But the 25th anniversary. <laughs> <laughs> 
But um, other than that, I mean, here's your running order, MGM, if you go and do that bullshit again where you split the films up over different box sets. Um, ah. You know, uh-huh. Casino will be paired with Octopussy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Etc. Because they tried that last time um, back in the early 2000s <laughs> to make you pick the other ones. But um, I was surprised to see Craig take all top three spots, to be honest with you. When that gold nine number came in, I was like, Casino might beat it, but there's no way anything else is going to. And then, mm. of course, you know, the Queen died and whatnot. But yeah. Yeah. I, I, I would genuinely suggest it's probably more down to circumstance that kind of just luck yeah. well, or unlucky circumstances were posing in its favor, to be honest. Um, I think the extra bank holiday probably did wonders for Skyfall. Yes. So it might be a while before we see this run in the big screen again. Um, was there any one that you would recommend, Sean? Because you saw you saw nearly all of them. What would be the one that you would say if it, if it's ever on the big screen, you should definitely make an appointment to go see it out of all of them? Oh, oh. Do you, do you know what? It's it's you only live twice. That movie was made for a big screen. It was made to be loud and boomy and over the top. Um, and and I honestly, I thought. That I thought that crown would go to Moonraker before going mm. into them all. And Moonraker was excellent, um, but there was something about You Only Live Twice. It just had an extra punch. Um, but a lot of them were. GoldenEye was tremendous. Um, th- what was lovely, someone, uh, our screening, uh, our cinema was obviously um, a GoldenEye fan because they ramped up the audio really loud for it. <laughs> <laughs> so that really added to it. Um, and if you're after one that you'd like to reassess, then certainly License to Kill. Mm. Mm. Yeah, because License to Kill, I think it's very easy to take it for granted and it's very easy to say it has a TV movie kind of feel when you watch it at home. doesn't feel like that at all in the cinema. Mm. I've certainly been guilty of that in the past and of the, like I say, I only saw four of them, but that was the one that I think I got the most out of and just seeing, you know, this particular print and everything because you become so used to whatever the most available transfer is, you know, Blu-ray, DVD or Mm. whatever and seeing it, you know, in a different kind of restoration, a different kind of setting can make all the difference and some like me and Sean have talked about this in the past as well certain um bits in the audio tracks I I I don't know if they're new mixes or what but in Goldeneye in particular there was certain just like little bits that are normally so faint in the audio that I can't hear them that uh Xenia and the Admiral having a little conversation as Bond watches them go to their little boat to take them to the yacht um just like little bits in the audio that you could pick up on that like oh I've never heard that before it was really interesting well, yeah, there, there was one in Goldfinger I spotted, something I've never spotted before, was that Honor Blackman calls, um, is it Miley, when they get off the plane? She calls her by the actress name. Um, uh-huh. And I've, I've never clocked that before. Huh. Um, but yeah, you're right. There's just lots of little things like that um, mm. that come out. Uh, what were That's- the other two you saw, just out of curiosity, Cameron? Uh, I saw License to Kill, and then I obviously got the taste for it because I went to GoldenEye, <laughs> The World's Not Enough, and uh, Dying of the Day. Uh, but then I couldn't do any of the Craig ones because of work and holiday commitments and stuff. But I wish I'd gone to more of the earlier ones, to be perfectly honest. I wish I'd just made more of the effort. And it, it, what I, I think we d- should commend as well is the restoration, um, mm. because they did all look 
beautiful and the older ones in particular um look great and it's something i think that's taken for granted um when you watch a lot of older movies now when you comp- when you compare a lot of movies from the same period that they've not been restored with the same level of love and care and i know there were some issues with these um mm-hmm. but they do they do look clean and they look well managed in the same way that the star wars films kind of get that treatment mm. um they've just not been tampered with but the, i think continuing to restore them over the years has really done them wonders and it's remarkable how well diamonds are forever is what springs into my head is remarkable how well that the how clean that print um looks um because if you watch a if you could watch another film from 1971 a lot of them look very dirty very grotty they've not been scrubbed up um quite so well sorry Mm. i waffled i waffled there but no no it's all good Mm. So last kind of thing that we were hit over the head with on the 60th was merch. <laughs> and, um, use the term loosely because it seems to be other people's products with a logo slapped on. Um, rather than knocking some of the overpriced tat that came out, was there anything that caught your eye? It was like, ooh, actually, I quite like that. Uh, was it even this year? But the the one that just sort of was like unassuming – didn't botch the execution and didn't seem all that expensive for what it was, was the recreation of the Dr. No plaque casino plaques mm. uh, that factory mm. entertainment did. It was, yeah. it wasn't like ostentatious. It didn't, you didn't look at it and go, well, then why did you do that? Like you did with so many of these higher end merch things where, where they're sort of like kind of ruin it with a little bit of over branding. This was just a little prop replica and it looked great and it sits on the shelf and, and there, it wasn't uh I don't know, it wasn't an affront to my sensibilities the, <laughs> the way that's a rave review, huh? Um, the, the way that some of the, uh, the tie in merch was this year. Um, but a lot of it seemed like that there just wasn't, there wasn't a cohesive plan. I think like the, mm-hmm. the different licensees were allowed to sort of pitch something and it seemed like they said yes to everything. And, uh, you know, you've got those, uh, you know, it, brands for, for folks that don't know this, there's brands who have sort of, items featured in the films and they tend to use that as a launch pad to go way overboard on some stuff. Uh, right. Connolly is a brand that did, there's a shirt and a jacket in the new movie. And now there's a bunch of t-shirts on their website with just egregious sort of, uh, Freud type <laughs> movie titles on there and stuff. Um, yeah. but yeah, I think, I think that less is often more with this stuff. And sometimes a cute little lo- Lego car is fine. Yep. Uh, mm. 20 bucks, you know, it was great. <laughs> yeah. I think the DB five Lego car for 20 bucks or 20 quid or 20 euros. Cause it was always the same. I think in terms of accessible toys, merch and stuff, I think that was a gold star on that one. Mm. And and that came from Lego. That wasn't Eon's idea. Cause it's part of their champions racing series where all the cars are 20 bucks and they do different movie cars. Mm. Um, so, and, and I've, I've got to tip my hat. We put it on Twitter the cunning way that Lego got around giving James Bond a gun when the Eon rule is no toys with guns it was brilliant. <laughs> Absolutely brilliant that they just had to accidentally put a spare piece for the exhaust manifold in there, which was a pistol. It's like <laughs> 10 oh, out of 10. That's 10 interesting. out of 10. You won't see it on any of the advertisements for it, but it's in there. And, um, huh. And and it, it hits the thing that I'm always complaining about is that they, they need to start, you know, indoctrinating younger people into this franchise and, and mm-hmm. $130 mm-hmm. t-shirt isn't going to do it. So 
the the little the Lego car was uh just a just a sweet spot. Yeah, it was great. I really want them to do a Lego Lotus and a Lego mm. V8 and <gasps> some other ones. And then they didn't have to, but the I I the they put the the uh, plates mm-hmm. from every version of the DB5 was included. So you could it could be the oh. Goldfinger DB5 or it could be the uh, GoldenEye DB5 or the No Time to Die DB5. It was just very thoughtful for not yeah. a lot of money. Right. I, I, they could do really nice play sets actually and do like villains lairs mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. in that game. Yeah, I've often thought like the Goldfinger bank vault with the laser and odd job and Goldfinger. I mean, these like almost like dioramas, right? Yeah, they would be fabulous. Um, but Eon's restrictive policies about kids' toys and guns and stuff—it's uh, it's tough to get around. But they found a way around it. I just, I kind of hope that Eon don't find out how they found a way around it, so they can do it again. <laughs> no one. Hopefully, Eon's not listening. Yeah. Yeah. The merch stuff is is such a weird thing though because the venn diagram of what bond fans buy is cra- is probably crazy looking right the yeah. guy who's going <laughs> to buy the 600 pair of shoes is not necessarily the guy who's looking for a lego who's not necessarily the guy who just sort of expected them to put them all out on 4k this year in and of themselves these are all kind of reasonable requests but but if you're waiting for the 4k and you get a 600 pair of shoes in your inbox you know, it starts to rankle everybody. And I think there was a lot of grouchiness about how the 60th was being observed by these different companies because each one is so well, niche. The thing, I think the biggest problem is selling everything to everybody through 007 store is mm. never going to make everybody happy. Mm. Because when Snowgrove was doing this stuff back in the 80s and 90s, his opinion was, I'm paraphrasing because we talked to him about well, friends of friends talked to him about it, was like he'd rather sell 10 pairs of cufflinks in the window of Harrods than sell a toy car. Right. Mm. And so you have these two completely disparate audiences of buyers, right? But they're all being channeled through the same email list and marketing platform and store. So you've got, you know, well, they didn't even sell the Lego store through the store, did they? But you've got the cheap stuff. Right next to a sixty-four thousand pounds backgammon set or something. It's right. like it hurts both sides of the argument. Mm. And you know, part of that's on the fans to. Uh, there's there's a fan culture in not, certainly not just in Bond, where if the fan is not being catered to directly in that moment, it's it's cause for consternation, and they get aggravated and vocally angry about it on the internet. And mm. you know, I think you know. <laughs> All things being equal, a grown-up should be able to look at everything on the 007 store and figure out what's for them and right. what isn't. Right. <laughs> but when they're getting these emails, it's just it's just pissing them off for some reason. And they're getting right. they're get they're taking it personally. They're taking a, a solid gold zippo personally. Um <laughs> with, with with bad grammar uh engraved on it. Um right. so, so it's a I don't know how to fix that, but it's a weird sort of uh tempestuous scenario that mm-hmm. Uh, this year seemed to be at a fever pitch. Yeah. And it, so, it, it's a shame because there were some good little bits of merch missed, I think. What, was Shana, what, what would you? Well, I, I, so personally, I did the one, I let myself buy one bit of expensive merch, um, and that was the replica Live and Let Die cards, the tarot mm-hmm. cards. I thought they were wonderful, and they also discovered some entertainment. Same, yes. same ones that did the Dr. No Plax, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, they discovered some of the old artwork, so I incorporated that as well. And that was a lovely set, but that I was very aware that was a very expensive kind of splash. 
Um, the other things that caught my eye, um, I thought the jigsaw was absolutely wonderful. I don't like jigsaws personally, but I thought the art was tremendous and the way it kind of creatively incorporated mm-hmm. all the different Bond movies. I really love that. Um, I liked the, there were the little, I don't think they were Corgi, but they released some new die cast model cars. Mm-hmm. I think, I think they're die cast. Um, I want to say it's Motomax or someone, and they were vehicles that you wouldn't necessarily um, yeah. go to. They wouldn't be a first. So there was stuff like uh, Fiona Volpe's car from Thunderball, Jinx's car from Dying of the Day. Um, and so that, that I thought was really cool and lovely. And they were, that expensive i i have my one dollar hot wheels aston martin valhalla concept <laughs> no time to die logo screen time package um one buck it was wow. in the grocery store um, nice. i had to laugh where it says screen time on it it's like skelectrix did a couple of sets too yes yes which is um, and that had a great that box had a great bit of art on the front, didn't it? Of yeah. the DB5 and the Vantage yeah. racing each other. Yeah. Big splurge on the 68th. It was uh, a completely unofficial piece of merchandise, but maybe Sean knows what I'm talking about. There's an artist named Paul Mann. Ah, mm-hmm. uh, yes. And oh, that be- beautiful artwork. Yeah, he did sort of Connery's Bond with all of Connery's Bond girls, mm. sort of like as, as a pastiche kind of thing. And... Uh, it was just too too good to pass up. Oh, oh, I'm, je- I'm jealous. I'm jealous. Um, there, there's some tremendous artists that have done some wonderful work. There, there's recently, um, including you. Oh, I thought your reimagination of the uh, the Anne Fleming stories with Connery in them was really a very cool. Was it three pieces? Right, it was a triptych. Yes. Kind of. so I love- Thank you, uh, but that that was just literally me going. Oh, I'm going to do something. I want to do something different because I'd done that's, everything that's last really year. Good stuff but, happens. but honestly, honestly, there's some beautiful um, stuff. Um, Billy Robertson, I was really impressed. Billy's Bond art. He did 60 pieces for 60 years, 60 bits of art, and they were gorgeous. Um, there was a great one by Mark Murphy. He goes by Thrice Champion. Who yep. did, and he did the, all the gun barrels assembled together. Beautiful pieces. Um, the chap that does, is it James Bond Poland? Did a great, uh, a few posters as well. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful art and really some good stuff on the community. Uh, so well done, everybody. Um, but but also, yeah, the other, the, I'd liked other little things. I'm still kind of tempted, and you were with me, Calvin, at the, concert because they had a merch stand at the concert mm. and i still really want some of those socks yeah the well, new james bond socks, I've, socks got, I've got the thunderball pair but it's, it's also like 17 pound for a pair of socks is just a little bit too much um i thought the snow globe was kind of cool i remember that mm. with spiral of me snow globe um and then there were just some bonkers ones uh the luggage luggage stickers were <laughs> I can't find yeah. those. Um, the, yeah. the, actually, the, the, and I think me and you spoke about this, Calvin. The one bit of merch that's really confused to me, um, and I'm sure there'll be people that have some very heated opinions about this, um, are the steel box. Oh yeah. yes, yes. It's, they've redone um, some. They've redone some of the collection. So there's, they, but they've not done them all. They've done ne- nearly all of them, but not all of them. So still missing is, oh, you guys might have to put me in here, Di- Dine of the Day, 
Goldeneye doesn't have one that matches. It just has its very old original steelbook from way back when. Um, and Live and Let Die is the other one, I think. Um, so it's, it's really weird that they've not quite done them all. Um, I think there are a lot of people also kind of a little bit annoyed, obviously, that they're not 4K because that seems like the natural step. But as I think we mentioned, the it's just the movie too, right? It's just, a, it's just really. the movie. On the it's Blu-ray just the movie, so. yeah. It's a very, they're very basic. But what what really baffles me about them is the price point that they've gone for, because they've <laughs> yeah. put them in. They've put them in at what seventeen ninety nine, so eighteen pound. Which for anyone who collects steelbooks will probably know that that's actually quite low for a steelbook, right? Mm. I mean, it's ex- it's expensive for a catalog movie that we've all bought several times, but for a steelbook, <laughs> usually that's quite a low price point. And I've done some work previously with Blu-ray companies and we chatted about this. And from my understanding, the cost to produce a steelbook, just the steelbook itself, is around four pounds. Mm-hmm. And so they have once to you... sell them through at retail at 50%, right? So... Exactly. So I can't I can't fathom why they've done it because surely they can't be making very much money on them anyway. Mm. Um, and it seems an odd decision not to wait for the 4K to be ready to then re-release. So, I mean, I guess they wanted to do something for the 50th, the 60th, sorry. But it is a weird choice, as you say. It's like to not even complete the set. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's just so odd. And a set that was, you know, originally from six years ago or whatever, mm-hmm. when they released all of the uh, the movies that had Spectre involved in some way, I think, mm-hmm. wasn't it? Uh, yeah. And the, and and the that- Craig ones. And they were a controversial set of artworks back then as well. Not everybody took to them way back mm. when. Mm. But it's funny that because whenever they release the DVDs or Blu-rays, everyone says, why don't they just use the movie posters? Why don't they just use the artwork from the intros? And then they go and do that. And everyone's like, yeah. I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> I really liked them. It pained me because if, if they were 4K, I would have snapped them up, like all of them probably. But uh, yeah, it's just, Honestly, I just... I think, just I think we're this close to having like the Tesco value label where it's just like a white thing with yeah. the black film logo on it. <laughs> well, that was that was the box set, the last Blu-ray yeah. box set, wasn't it? The inside of that was literally just white with black text. Yeah. yeah. That'll stop them complaining. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it was, it's just such an odd mix. And a couple of them, was it Dr. No and Casino Royale? Casino Royale was published by titans of cult so it was published by a third party so that's a one-off right uh it's just a little bit little all a little bit strange and kind of screams that they don't really have much of a strategy so i'm hoping the 4k release when we do get them will be a bit more coordinated yeah Mm. it'd be interesting to see their strategy whether they drip them out like a couple of months like they used to do or they just hit everybody with a big box set Hmm. Mm, I'd, it'll be a big box. I'd put money on that now. It'll be yeah. a big box, and it, there'll be a big over-the-top version in an attaché case or something like that as well. Yeah, <laughs> and it'll cost a fortune as well. Yeah, for, yeah. For rate of four K discs. Yeah, yeah. And you know, if you want stickers for that attaché case, it's even more. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so the, the one, did, did Calvin? Did they did they they prize your wallet open and take any money out of your wallet this, this anniversary other than the events? Did oh, you get I, anything I, from the? I, I, w- I was really hoping you weren't going to come to me because I, <laughs> I, 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 d- I did pre-order the uh, the Factory Entertainment uh, Moonraker laser <laughs> because that, oh. I know it's it's the it's the one like I've only got a couple of Factory Entertainment things the Golden Eye device and the Golden Gun, um, but that Moonraker laser is the one that I I regretted not getting 
Um, they're all props that, funnily enough, uh, you come up in James Bond games in Nightfire in particular. I think mm. uh, you know the Golden Eye devices there, Golden Gun, Moonraker lasers, and Golden Eye. Um, anyway, so I just wanted to complete my little trilogy set of uh, beloved Bond, oh, prod, Bond po- prop replicas. There we go, God. Um, mm. But it's not even come yet. Um, right. Can, can I come and look at it when you've got it? Right. Of course, yes. Please. You can it- um, fire it if you'd like. <gasps> oh. <laughs> I know. Is it is it the white one or the black one? I got the white one, uh-huh. yeah. Uh, there's tempted I was by the black one, but it was £100 more. So I was like, oh, I, don't, I definitely can't justify right. that. You're already uh, in for a kidney. So. Yeah, exactly. So... <laughs> Uh, yeah. No, but that that was my big splurge. I was looking around at my shelves then, actually. So, oh no, I've been pretty, um, mm-hmm. yeah, Fis- economical, fiscally responsible. Yeah. Yeah. So, speaking of kidneys, um, I- I'm in for the pinball table, <laughs> <laughs> which I never thought I'd be excited about a pinball table. But holy shit, is that thing great? Mm. And I can't wait. You're getting and, it. Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. I thought you were just joking. Oh, that's no. amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I've I've even cleared a space. So um, yeah, I'm eagerly anticipating it, although it's probably going to be a couple months um, mm. for them to get them out. And it's a bit of a drive to go pick it up and whatnot. But uh, that, yeah, I'm I'm thrilled. I've always wanted the GoldenEye pimple table, but they're very hard to find and very expensive. Mm. Um, the one they brought out in 95. Um but yeah, this is going to be something else. This, this is to me is like the one thing I've always wanted, and um, yeah, all the other stuff's just going to be like put back in boxes. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the thing with these kind of collectibles, though, and I think you'll find this with the factory entertainment stuff, is they do hold their value, hmm. as opposed to some of the other merch that's out there. That's I true. Don't if you, I don't know if you need to justify it to your other half, Calvin, about your, your Moonraker gun, but um, <laughs> if, if, times get, if time gets hard and you're thinking about whether you're heating or eating, it can be like, well, we can always sell the Moonraker pistol. Uh, oh. <laughs> and you'll, get, you'll at least get your money back. Well, that, that's it. It, it. it is an asset and, yeah. you know, <laughs> of some kind. <laughs> well, I, I'm, like- I'm exactly the same. I buy because. Some of the what I've spent most about the money on probably was not direct from Double Assessor. Sorry, sorry, Barbara and M- MGW. I'm not directly giving you money. Um, but I, <laughs> I think the, they're fine though. I yeah. bought a few of the old original copies of posters, um, and you can find them all, you can find them popping up on eBay all the time. Mm. Um, so I got an original Moonraker last year. I got an original Never Say Never Again a while ago. Um, and then this year, I got hold of a, an original a View to a Kill and Living Daylights, mm. um, which aren't, and they aren't massively expensive. Um, I think my View to a Kill, after I had paid shipping and taxes, only cost me about 80 quid. Right. It's like that's an original, it's an original US one sheet that hung in a cinema somewhere at the time. Right. Um, you'd, you'd probably pay that for a replica from the same store. So. Yes. Yes, you would. All right. So, anything on the Santa's Christmas list for you guys? Um. <laughs> hmm. Probably just the socks. Uh, there is a Moonraker <laughs> pair that I've got my eye on. Uh, that'd be nice. <laughs> socks for Christmas. We're getting yeah. old. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know, actually. Uh, 
And it's a, is the octopusy still, robe still knocking about? <laughs> it's <laughs> gone. Oh no, actually, no. There is one thing. Um, the new book, um, the stunt book, John Richardson. Is it? Mm. Well, John Richardson's <laughs> is the VFX book, and uh, right, yeah, yeah, the um, photos of his work. It's actually really yes. good. Looks 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 beautiful. So. That's what I'm hoping someone will drop in my stocking. Mm. Mm. My my dream is that the Folio Society, who were uh-huh. dropping these beautiful hardcovers of the novels every year, or two a year, I think, um, finish what they started and they have. Out, they have. they are they doing the short stories? Yeah, it's yes. out. Yeah, it's available. What, what? Yeah, two days ago. Yeah, the eyes only. Yeah, I don't yeah. think they've done an octopus yet, have they? In the living well, day, yeah, lights. they they drop no, one at no, a yeah. time, so that's fine. But this is good yeah. news. Oh my god. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, be- it's beautiful. A lovely illustration for from a view to a kill. Oh my god! Okay, I gotta go order it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, on that bombshell. Thank you, Phil, Calvin, <laughs> and Sean, and uh, see you again soon. Yeah, happy see anniversary. You. See you on the sixty first. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah.